Amen. His name is powerful. His name saves. His name secures. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me now to Judges chapter 6? Judges chapter 6. Megan got really nervous when she saw that we were covering Judges 6 and 7. She said, you have trouble covering one verse. You're going to do two chapters. We're going to give it our best shot this morning. We're, we're not going to read all of it. First, we're going to read Judges chapter 6, and we're just going to read verses 11 through 18, and we'll get to the others as we go through the sermon this morning. Beginning in verse 11 of chapter 6, it says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from me here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. Let's pray to the Lord together this morning. Heavenly Father, this morning we come and we ask, Are you really there, Lord? Are you really there? God, we struggle so much with doubt in our lives, with insecurity in our lives, with anxiety in our lives, with worry in our lives. We, we struggle being able to discern what's true from what's false in such a, a corrupt age. And we look at it all and we think, are you really there, Lord? But Lord, we, we know that if you are, if you are alive, if you are present, if you are willing, if you are able then that changes everything for us. So Father, I pray this morning that you would confirm that in the hearts of your saints. I pray that they would have a settled conviction of your presence in their lives. And Lord, I ask for those who have lived having never given their faith, placed their faith in you, having never been convinced that you are there, that this morning you would convince them that you are present and you are willing and you are able and that you are the God who will save them and sanctify them and use them for your glory. Oh God, show them. I have nothing to say today. You have to say it all. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So a few weeks ago, Sarah, my, my middle daughter, middle child, she, she and I were at the park. And Sarah was doing what Sarah always does. Sarah likes to go and make friends. You know, I've talked to you before about how she spends a lot of time with her grandmother. She stays at home a lot. So when she gets to a park, like, she's looking for kids. You know what I mean? Like, she's on a beeline for kids. And so she was there, 
and she was making friends with this other little girl that was there, but this other little girl was probably two or three years older than Sarah. And at the part that we were at, they had this fireman pole that was right there in the middle of the playground. And the older little girl kept going up and down this fire, or down, it's hard to go up a fireman pole. Uh, but she kept sliding down. And so she would run and she'd climb and she'd slide down. And I could see that Sarah wanted to take part in it so badly, right? So badly. Matter of fact, I overheard her tell this other little girl, she said, the, the other little girl says, it's fine, you can do it. And Sarah said, um, I'm still little, and I'm still a little bit afraid of heights. <laughs> and if you knew Sarah, you'd, just, you'd understand that a little bit more. Uh, she's just so funny like that. But I can just tell, you know, as a, as a parent, you can just see the little wheels that are turning in uh, your, your kids' heads. And, and so I walked over there, and I said, Sarah, you really can do this. You really can do this. And I can tell when I said it, she wanted it to be true, but she didn't believe that it was true, you know? She wanted it to be true, but she didn't believe that it would be true. And so, uh, so what I told her is, is I said, look, I'll hold my arms underneath you, and I'll catch you if you fall, I promise. I, I will make sure that you don't fall and that you don't get hurt, but you can do this. This is what she would do. She would go and she would put her hands on the pole, and she would put one leg on the pole, and the other foot would be on the platform. And then she kept over and over and over asking me, are you really there, Dad? Are you really there, Dad? Will you really catch me, Dad? Are you sure you've got me, Dad? Do you really? And so she would be there, and she would be just about to put the other foot. And she was like, are you really there, Dad? Are you really there? Well, of course, you know what happened. Finally, finally, she did. She put her both legs, and she slid right down. It was no big deal. And then she did it the rest of the day. But as I thought about it, I thought, I don't know that there is a picture that better describes my relationship with God than that one. I think that's about as clear as it gets. That's how I feel all of the time. That God is calling me forward to new experiences with Him. God is calling me forward to, to do new and greater things in His name and for His glory. And the whole time He's saying, look son, I've got you. I've got you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to provide you for you. I am going to give you what you need to be able to sustain you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to deliver you. Son, I have you. And the whole time there's me with one foot on the platform and one foot on the pole saying, Are you there, Lord? Are you really there, Lord? Are you really there? And, and that's why I think that Gideon may just be the character of the Bible that I most identify with. Because what we see in Gideon, so Gideon, we've, remember we talked about how they're, throughout the book of Judges, we've kind of jumped forward. There's 12 cycles, there's 12 judges that kind of all are on this repeat. The people of Israel do evil in the sight of the Lord. They, God allows them to be plundered by their enemies. They call out in repentance and God raises up a judge, a savior from within them. Well, Gideon is the fifth in this 12, so he's right in the middle. And what you'll find in the book of Judges is it gets weirder every chapter, and they kind of regress and devolve with every single chapter. And so uh, by the time we get to Gideon, it's the strangest yet. It's the most severe yet. But what we find in Gideon is we find a man who is frequently defined by his doubts, who's defined by his fearfulness, who's defined by his insecurity. And so three different times in these first two chapters, what we see is we see Gideon saying, are you there, are you there, are you really there, Lord? Are you really there, Lord? The first time that kind of sets the pattern for this is in verse 13. He says, And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Do you see it? He said, if, if God is really there, 
If we've experienced God, if we know God, if God is in our midst and God is really delivering us and God is really providing for us and God is really protecting us, if God is really there, if the Lord is with us, how is it that we're experiencing all the suffering, all of the hardship, all of the difficulties that we're really experiencing? And so what I think we are able to see in these two chapters of Gideon is we're able to see three frequent reasons and experiences with doubt that we have. That, that with Gideon's doubt, we're able to relate to him, or at least I am. Maybe, maybe all of y'all are super faith. I hope that you are, by the way. I hope you all have the spiritual gift of faith. I don't. I struggle. And I struggle with doubt and fear and worry. And that makes Gideon incredibly relatable to me. The first of these that we see is that we doubt when life is hard. We doubt when life is hard. You probably know this, but the situation for Gideon is dire. It's dire. So two different times. So what you have is it, says, it describes the Midianites once at the beginning of chapter 6 and once at the end of chapter 7. It describes the Midianites as being as though they are locusts upon the crops of Israel. Now there's a few different reasons that it says that. First of all, the Midianites are the enemies, right? They're the enemies of, of Israel that God has allowed to plunder them because of his judgment against them because they've done evil in his sight. And so they are described as locusts on one hand because they are so numerous. It says that they have 135,000 fighting men alone. That's not counting the elderly. That's not counting the young. That's not counting the women and the children. 135,000 fighting men have come and made their approach into, into Israel. And they are there. And the other reason they're described as locusts is because they are destroying the crops of Israel. They are wreaking havoc on their food supply, creating great insecurity for Israel. The stability, the well-being of the nation is in great dire straits because of the Midianites. But the final and perhaps most significant reason that they're frequently referred to as locusts is because it's meant to bring our minds back to where? The plagues of Egypt. God had delivered his people through the plague of the locusts, had he not? He had brought the locusts upon, upon Egypt to show that he was with his people. But now, as the hand of the Lord has been set against his people, the plague has come against them. And so, just as God had delivered them by the locusts, now they need God to deliver them from the locusts. And so, the idea in our minds is supposed to be painted that the situation, the suffering, is intense. And what we see in Gideon's life are what I think are the two most common responses or reactions that we typically have to suffering. The two most common, and I bet if you think back to your life and you think back, if you've lived long enough to suffer, you think back to the hardships that you face, I bet that you will find these responses in your own life. The first response that we see in Gideon is he says, I'm not strong enough. I'm not strong enough. If you look at verses 11 and 12 there with me, uh, I, I want to point out something to you. Because uh, Judges chapter 6 and chapter 7 are framing up Gideon and characterizing Gideon in a particular way that helps the story make sense to us. All right, So verse 11, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, while his son Gideon was beating wheat in the winepress. All right, So I want you to hold that in your mind. Beating wheat in the winepress to do what? To hide it from the Midianites. Alright, now, why is it significant that he beat the wheat in the wine press? Because that's not how you thresh wheat. That's not how you thresh wheat. 
See, see, the wine press would be in a cave. It would be in a place that was out of the sun. It would be in a place that was out of the elements. It would be, be somewhere where they would be able to have time to allow it to ferment and be, go through all the processes that it would go through. But to thresh wheat, what you had is you had a threshing floor that was outside. And it was outside on purpose because you would take and you would separate the stalk of the wheat from the head of the wheat. And then you would discard the stalk and you would throw the heads of the wheat up into the air. And as the wind blew through, the wind would blow the chaff away from the actual grain. And the grain would fall to the threshing floor. And so you could go and and, and collect it. It actually makes it makes no sense to go and to uh, thresh wheat in, in, indoors or where the wine press was. And so what we, the first picture that we have of Gideon is Gideon in hiding. It, it's Gideon being afraid. It's Gideon being fearful, which is ironic because how does God come and address him? This is a theophany. The angel of the Lord is, is, is not just any angel. It is a, a, an earthly representation, an earthly manifestation of Yahweh himself. And so he comes to the, and he appears to him and he says, The Lord is with you, what? O mighty man of valor. O mighty man of valor. Now you have to understand, he's calling him a man of valor for two reasons. First, it's ironic. Gideon is anything but a man of valor. In fact, what we see in Gideon is that Gideon is actually incredibly prone to doubt. If you were to read all of Judges chapter 6 and chapter 7, over and over and over, it would say, Gideon was afraid, Gideon was fearful, Gideon was nervous, Gideon was worried. That Gideon is a man that is like so many of us, he is prone to doubt. He is prone to doubt. That if you find it true in your spirit that when God calls you forward to go and do something and your first reaction is, I'm not so sure about that. I don't really think so. How is that going to work out? Lord, I think you're crazier than I am. Like if that, those are your types of reactions, then Gideon is your man. Gideon is your man. Because time and again, he is described as a man that is more prone to go into hiding than he is to go into walk by faith. He is a man that wants to live by sight. He wants to live by the rationality of his mind. He wants to live by by the logic of his days. He is a man that is profoundly, profoundly cowardly and skittish. And so it is ironic when the angel of the Lord comes to him in hiding as he's threshing wheat indoors, unable to do what he needs to do. And he comes and he says, oh, mighty man of valor. But not only is it ironic, it's also prophetic. Because you see, what God does with weak men is he makes them into people that they aren't. What God does with weak women is he makes them into women whom they are not naturally. Supernaturally, by his hand, for his glory, in his image, he molds us and shapes us into something greater. He was not a man of valor, but he would be. But he would be. So the natural response of of Gideon is to say, Lord, are you, are you serious? You're talking to me? And what happens in the midst of suffering? When you're going through a hard time, what do we become? We become introspective, don't we? I know if, if in, in times in my life when I've, when I've been depressed or when I've struggled with my health or I've struggled with, with various uh, insecurities or, or anxiety or, or whatever, the first question I always ask is, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? Where are the failures in my life? Why am I so weak? Why am I so broken? Why am I so messed up? 
why is it that all these other people around me are, seem so happy and all these other people around me seem so bold and so courageous and I am so cowardly wanting to back away? I think that's exactly what we see in Gideon's life. Look at verse 15 with me. Verse 15, listen to what he says. He says, and he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. He says, Lord, obviously you've come to me here in the middle of the cave where I'm in hiding, threshing the wheat in a way that is unnatural to thresh the wheat because I'm trying to hide from the Midianites. Obviously you've come and you found the wrong guy. You are mistaken. You don't understand. You're probably looking for someone from the clan of Ju- from the tribe of Judah. You're, you're probably looking for, at best, one of my older brothers, one of my stronger brothers. Lord, what you need to understand about me is I am the weakest of men. I am the most cowardly of men. Perhaps when the angel of the Lord uh, calls him the man of valor, it brings conviction into Gideon's life of what a cowardly mistake he really is. I wonder how many of you can identify with Gideon there. Lord, I know what you're calling me to do. I know who you're calling me to be, but I can't do it. I'm too weak. The second reaction that we most, that's most common in the midst of suffering. So if the first is, uh, Lord, I'm not strong enough. The second is, Lord, you're not good enough. Lord, you're not good enough. Is that not what we see? When we see verse 13 there, it says, And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord was with us, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all, where are all his wonderful deeds? In other words, I don't see anything good from the Lord. I don't see anything good from the Lord in my life. I don't see anything good from the Lord in Israel that our fathers recounted us saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Here's what he's saying. I've heard the stories. I know about what, God has, what they say that God has done. I know about who they say that God is. But I can tell you that's not my experience. That's not my experience. I've heard of that, that he delivered us from Egypt. But he sent locusts upon Egypt. And here the Midianites are coming upon us as though they are locusts. I feel as though I have been forsaken by God, betrayed by God, as though God has withdrawn his hand from me to never bring it again. In fact, I'm not sure God is there at all. So here is God in the flesh talking to him, talking to him. And Gideon is looking the angel of the Lord right back, eyeball to eyeball, mano y mano. And he said, are you really there, Lord? Are you really there? the picture of a little girl putting her one leg on the fire pole saying, Dad, do you really have me? Dad, do you really have me? And I wonder right now if some of you are in the darkest hour of your life, I wonder if right now some of you are in the valley of the shadow of death and your cancer has returned or the diagnosis is, is, is terminal or if your marriage is rocky or your kids haven't turned out the way that you thought that they would and you can sit there and hear all the platitudes about God and all the cliches about God and perhaps you spent all of your life reading the words and the truth and the promises about God but you're left with one abiding, besetting question and the question is are you really there Lord suffering brings you to the end of yourself doesn't it I'm too weak and he's not good that can be our conclusion but what I want you to see is that it is the point the whole time 
that what Gideon is, how Gideon is responding and what Gideon is, Gideon is feeling and the questions that Gideon is asking, they are the point the entire time. I want you to bring those things together, okay? Bring those things together. Lord, I'm too weak. You know what the point is? Suffering intends to bring you to the end of yourself. Suffering intends for suffering is intended to make you introspective so that you search out your heart and search out your soul and you look for strength only to realize you don't have any. Only to realize you can't pick yourself up by your bootstraps this time. Only to realize that you are insufficient to have all of the answers for the day that you're facing. Only to realize that the anxiety that you know, that the sickness that you're facing, that the sin and the consequences of that sin in your life are overwhelming and insurmountable for someone who is as puny and cowardly and as weak as you. It's supposed to. But, 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 it's also supposed to bring you to a place in which you begin to search out the truth about God, asking, God, are you really there? And it is against the backdrop of your weakness that the brightness of God's goodness comes to shine. I think about my cousin. My cousin, she may be, honestly, the very best person I know in my life. She has endured incredible hardship in her life. And just last week, she was telling me a story. She said that she was laying there in the hospital and she had had her fifth stroke. She has three, three kids and she had, had had her fifth stroke. She has one daughter about the age of Sarah. She said, and I, as I was laying there, I realized I've gotten it all wrong. She said, I thought I needed to be super mom. And she did, man. She did everything. And like, if you knew her, if you knew her, she's one of those people that you want to do everything. Because she's always happy. She's always cheerful. She's always kind. She's always patient. Right? And so she was the PTO president and the band booster president. And she was uh, coaching Little League. And she was uh, teaching VBS and, and, and preschoolers at church. And she, she was doing everything. And she said, I was trying to be super mom. And yet everything that I did, I kept feeling like I'm not measuring up. I, I, no matter what I did, I always felt like I was insufficient. I always felt like it was inadequate. I always felt like it wasn't enough. She says, I was laying there in the hospital bed, having had my fifth stroke, realizing that my life had to change. And what I discovered is, is that I'd had it wrong the whole time. That, that what God wanted was not all of the stuff that I could do to prove to everybody what a great mom I was, to prove to everybody what a great person I was, to prove to everybody what a great Christian I was. That what God wanted was me. That what God wanted was me. And she said, I laid there having had this fifth stroke, knowing that there was nothing else that I could do and that, there was, that my life was never going to be the same and I was not going to be able to do all the things that I had done before. And suddenly I was overcome by the goodness of God because I realized I didn't need to do any of those things anyway. She said, and I can tell you honestly, Cody, the la over the last year, I love God more than I've ever loved him before. I don't even know if I knew him before the way I know him right now. And time and time again, in the middle of this incredible crisis, what she was able to discover was that God was good and God was satisfying and God was enough. He had brought her to the end of herself so that she said, like Gideon, I am not enough, only to discover in the questioning of God's goodness that God was actually good and God was actually there. I wonder if that's been your experience. 
I wonder if God has brought you to the end of yourself so that against the backdrop of your weakness, you might reach out and know and cling wholly unto his goodness. So we doubt when times are hard, don't we? We don't just doubt when times are hard, though. We doubt when the call is big. We doubt when the call is big. He he even says there in that first section that we read just a few minutes ago, I'm calling you. Don't, Don't you know that I am with you? Don't you know that I am with you? He is revealing himself to Gideon through Gideon's weakness in Gideon's call. He said, don't you know that I'm with you? You can go. You can do it. You can save your people. Can you imagine if God came to you while you're hiding out in your basement, afraid of whatever enemy might be there, and God comes and he says, hey, you know, I I know it's bad out there, and so what I've decided to do, I'm going to save everybody. And you're like, yes, Lord, that's what I've been waiting on. He says, so I'm going to send you to go do it. Whoa. Easy, ho, 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 ho. I know some smarter people than me. I know some stronger people than me. I know some better people than me. Anybody, literally, but me. Except that's Gideon's call. That's Gideon's call. God has come to this cowardly man hiding in a cave, and he says, I'm going to use you to save the people. I'm going to use you to be my representative to all the world. Now, I want you to imagine what your question would be. What would your question be? Your question would probably be, are you really there, Lord? Look at what Gideon says. Look at, look at how Gideon responds. He says, then Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early in the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon, what should Gideon do? He said, if you will, if you will just do this, Lord, if you will just show me, if you'll just, if you'll just soak the fleece, here's what I'll do. I will obey you. I need to know, first of all, Lord, I need to know that your word is true. So here I give you my word that if you'll just do this, I'm in. So you're expecting that Gideon's gonna do what? He's gonna go. But what we find is, is that our word may not be quite as dependable as the word of the Lord. Because what does he say? Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn. Let me be patient with me, Lord. Let me speak just once more. Please, let me test just once more with the fleece. Please, let it be dry on the fleece only and on all the ground. Let there be dew. And God did so that night. Every time we see an if, a then, a once more, a a test, what are we seeing? This is Gideon time and again saying, Lord, I need to know, are you really there? Are you really there? The call is so big. The call is so enormous. I am so weak. I am so small. I am so cowardly. I have to know if you want me to go where I'm going, if you want me to be who you're calling me to be, if you want me to do what you're calling me to do, I have to know you are there, Lord. I have to know it. Have you ever noticed? Have you ever noticed that your doubt increases in proportion to the size of the call that God has placed on your life? You ever noticed that? If you have no doubt in your life, it may be because you haven't heard God calling you forward to do great things in his name. But if God calls you to do something great, if God calls you forward to a high mission, a high calling in his glory, oh, brother, 
sister, there you'll find out. There you'll find out. I can think about people in our church. I, I know of at least three or four of you right now that are here this morning and you're wrestling with whether or not God is calling you to the mission field. That is a big call. That is a big call. And that is a call that you are likely to doubt. I want to ask you something. Would the devil call you to the mission field? Would the devil call you to the mission field? Some of you are, are wrestling, and I, I know this, with a call to the ministry. That's a call that's, that's profound to doubt, man. It means that you're, you're forsaking so many things in the Lord, and there's so much uncertainty in your future. Uncertainty, like what Gideon was facing as he was being called forward to go and to fight a Midianite army that was 135,000 strong. Would the devil call you into the ministry? Would the flesh call you into the ministry? For some of you, God is calling you and he's asking you to start a Bible study at work and it freaks you out. And you have thought of all of the reasons why it won't work and why it must not be God. But I'm telling you, the flesh would not call you to start a Bible study at work. Some of you, the Lord is moving in your life to begin discipling your children and to have devotions at home. And you have all of this anxiety and all of this awkwardness and all of this worry and all of this concern. But I have to ask you, I have to ask you, would the flesh call you to do that or would the Lord? But why are you doubting? The reason that you're doubting is because God is calling you to something great. The reason that you're doubting is because God is calling you beyond yourself. The reason that you're doubting is because this is something that you can't compensate for with your, with your charisma. It's something that you can't compensate for with your intellect. It's something you can't compensate for with your finances and your endowment. It's something that you can't compensate for in any way. Either the Lord shows up or you fail. But I want you to think about this. I want you to think about this. Our doubt often increases in proportion to the size of the call in our life. But that also means that we're most likely to miss the greatest movements of God in our life. You understand what I'm saying? If we're most likely to doubt the great calls that God places on us to go after and to follow after him, then it means that we're most likely to miss out on the greatest miracles and supernatural power of God in our lives. That in other words, you're missing out on the opportunities to see God supply in ways that you've never seen him supply. You're missing out on opportunities to see God step in and fill in the gaps of your weakness and overcome all of your inadequacies in a way that is incomprehensible to man. A way to see God work in ways that are not rational but supernatural, man. See, why is it that anyone would reject the call of God? Have you ever asked that? I remember like as being like a naive junior high kid, like listening, listening to my preacher preach. And one of the most memorable sermon series I ever remember him preaching was through Joshua. And he was asking these types of questions. I thought, why in the world would you ever not do what God told you to do? Like, you remember having this childlike faith like that? And then you grow up. <laughs> And you realize that your no is on the table a lot more than your yes is? See, we want lives that are uncomplicated by the need of God. Did you hear what I said? We want lives that are possible by our strength. We want lives that we can make sure everything works out in. 
We want lives in which the formula adds up just right. We don't want them complicated by us needing God to supply and needing God to show up and needing God to work. That's what we see in Gideon. As Gideon goes back, this is actually three different times in the first few verses of Gideon's life that we see him coming and asking for a sign of the Lord. It's the only time in all the Bible when it says that the Lord is tested and the Lord doesn't thump the guy from creation. Because there was something about Gideon that actually wanted to believe, that genuinely wanted to believe. And I wonder if there are some of you here and you know what God is calling you to do and there's so many doubts, but you really do want to do it. And you really do want to honor the Lord and you really do want to know the Lord and you really do want to to obey the Lord. In our home, especially over the last week, we've been talking a lot with Gracie Kate about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. About what it would mean if if she were to profess faith in Christ and be saved by Jesus. And this is, this is kind of what we've settled on. To be a follower of Jesus means that Jesus gets all of my life for the rest of my life. It means that Jesus gets all of my life for the rest of my life. That, that everything that I am, I will be what he wants me to be. I will go where he wants me to go. I will do what he wants me to do, and I will do that at all costs because of whatever cost I may incur, the cost pale in comparison to the treasure that I have gained in Christ. Let me ask you, does that characterize your fate? Does that characterize your life? Wherever God is calling you to go, are you willing to go? Whatever God is calling you to do, are you willing to do? Whoever God is calling you to be, are you willing to be? Brings us to the final time in which we're tempted to doubt and we doubt when the costs are high we doubt when the costs are high so Gideon receives these signs from the Lord and he begins and he goes and he blows the trumpet and he rounds up an army of 32,000 strong and 32,000 sounds pretty good until you remember there's 135,000 Midianites and so Gideon, being prone to, to fear as he is, he goes and he's, he's again calling out to the Lord. And the Lord comes this time and the Lord tests Gideon where before Gideon had tested the Lord. Gideon tells the Lord, I think my army is too small. And the Lord comes and says, I think your army may be too big. I think your army may be too big. As a matter of fact, I think that you may look around at the 32,000 fighting men that you have around you, and you may be deceived into believing that you have some form of strength that you do not have, that you may accomplish something that you cannot accomplish, that you may be tempted to take credit for something that you didn't do. And so he says, what I want you to do is I want you to go and I want you to ask all of the fighting men, how many of you are afraid? And Gideon asked them, and 22,000 of them are afraid. And Gideon sends home 22,000 men who are afraid. He's left with 10,000. The the army is less than half of what he had before, a third of what he had before. He's supposed to go and tackle an army of 135,000 who are swarming the land of Israel as though they are locusts. And God says, whoa, you still have way too many. You still have way too many. And one of the strangest tests in all of the scripture, he says, here's what I want you to do. Take all the men who've been out preparing for battle and I want you to let them go to the river and have a drink. And he says, what you're going to see is some of them are going to get on their hands and their feet and they're going to drink out of the water and they're going to gulp it down. But others are going to take it and they're going to scoop it up to their hands and they're going to lap it out of their hands like a dog. He said, that's your crew. 
You want the ones that are lapping it up like a dog. Now, biblical scholars, biblical scholars are conflicted on exactly why this, uh, God uses this particular sign to identify the fighting men of Israel. Some have said that it makes you, it's more vigilant because you can look as you're lapping the water out of your hands. But, but historically, the Jews have interpreted it a different way, and I think they're right. That who is not able to get down and bend down and drink out of the water? The older men, right? The weaker men. Further, who is it that has the energy? If you've been fighting and training and really doing well, man, you don't have time to scoop. You've got to get something to drink because you've been, you've been preparing for a real fight, a real battle. But those with plenty of energy, those who aren't that thirsty, they can afford to just scoop and lap. In, in other words, that what, ha- what I think we see is that God doesn't raise up the strongest 300, he raises up the weakest 300. So so I want you to think about God's God's formula here. He's got the weakest man, Gideon, leading the weakest army, the 300. And I didn't even tell y'all about the weapons. He's got the weakest weapon. Let me tell you, he didn't give them M16s. He didn't give them like flaming arrows and flaming darts. He doesn't give them the pillar, the missile of fire that Elijah calls down for. He doesn't give them all that. This is what he says. He says, I want you to get some jars and some torches. Right? Like, like basically, he's taking a classic candle. You know what I mean? Like the mason jar with the candle inside and then they're walking there. He's like... Y'all are facing to do some damage to these Midianites. Y'all are facing to make it rain down on the Midianites. And so God gives the weakest man, puts the weakest man in charge of the weakest army with the weakest weapons. And here's what we see. This is a call to come and die. This is a call to come and die. This is a call in which you are either going to die at the hands of the Midianites or you are going to die to your self-belief. You're going to die to any idea that you were strong enough. You're going to die to any concept that you can live without the need of God in your life. You're going to die to any idea that you are not utterly and totally dependent upon the kindness, the mercy, and the supply of the Lord. It reminds me of what Bonhoeffer famously said. He says, when when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. He bids him come and die. That the costs that were facing Gideon were not lost on Gideon. Gideon knew that if God did not supply and God did not show up, then he and his people would be struck down dead. They had no hope if the Lord didn't come through. See, this question that we've been asking the whole time, are you really there, Lord, is a life-altering question. Because if God is really there, then you are a fool if you live for anything else. If God is really there, then you are a fool if you live by your, actual, your own strength. If God is really there, then you are a fool if you live by what you're able to do. You're a fool if you live without need of him. But if God is not really there, you're a fool if you even come into the house of God in the morning. The question that determines everything is, are you really there, Lord? But if you resolve in your heart that God is alive, If you resolve in your heart that God is true and God is there and God is with us and God is guiding us and God is saving us, a living God will have nothing of a half-hearted commitment. So he asks him one more time. This time, God preempts the question that Gideon asks. He says, that same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But... 
If you are what? Afraid, go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant. So here, God said, look, if you're still not convinced, if you're still worried that I'm not with you, if you're still looking at the call as being too big and the suffering as being too intense and the cost as being too high, here's what I want you to do. I want you to listen to me. If you hear, if my words are not enough, I want you to go down. What's the very first thing that he did? And you shall, he, then, he went, then he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outpost of the armed, of the armed men who were in the camp. You know, God said, if you're not convinced, if you still doubt, I want you to go down. The very first thing that we read that Gideon did is, and then he went down. And then he went down. So, so, so one last time, here's Gideon saying, are you really there, Lord? Are you really there? Are you with me? Will you supply me? And he goes down and he hears the, at the enemy camp, he hears one of the enemy combatants saying that he had a dream the night before. And that in that dream, all 135,000 men had been delivered over to the hand of Gideon. And the, and the soldier began to tremble right there in the midst of the enemy camp, telling the other men that are around him that he was convinced that Gideon, that he, they had been given over to the hand of Gideon. And on the day of battle, the the 300 fighting men of Israel, the weak and the decrepit, the, the old and the tired, they go against the, the locusts of the Midianites, and it says that God throws them into a confusion, and they turn on one another, and the 135,000 begin to fight each other, and they strike one another down until only a few remain. But the Lord, the Lord won the battle, not Gideon. The Lord had supplied the strength, not Gideon. You see, this is a story. The story of Gideon is the story of what God is able and willing to do with the weakest of people. The story of Gideon is the story of what God is able to do through me and even you too. The story of Gideon is that if God is there, if God is alive, that we can do anything that God has called us forward to do. I wonder in your life, if you were convinced that God was able and God was willing and God was with you, what would you do for the kingdom of God? What would you do with your kids right now? How would you lead your family right now? What job would you take or not take right now? What church would you start or not start right now? What mission field would you go to or not go to right now? If you were convinced that God was alive and God was able and God was with you, what would you do for the kingdom of God knowing that he would supply everything that you need? Because you see, you and I, we have an advantage that Gideon did not have. See, Gideon looks forward to the day in which Jesus would come. Jesus, who is God incarnate, who would send his spirit that would testify to us that the resurrection is true, that Jesus came and he lived and he died, but Jesus was raised from the grave and now his spirit indwells all of us. And do you know what his spirit is saying to you and me? I am willing. I am able. I am alive. Come and follow me. Come and follow me. Oh, church, church, will you follow him? Let's pray the Lord together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.